How often have you said to yourself, I know that I should be doing X to grow my business and my life, but why can't I get myself to do it? If you're like most people, you've said this to yourself a million times, right? Well, there's a scientific reason, and there's a scientific reason of how to get yourself unstuck from this questions that you never ask it again. In today's podcast, we're talking about how to lock in a habit when discipline fails you. Welcome to Playing Full Out, where you'll discover tips to break through the personal and professional barriers in a hectic world that are preventing you from leading your optimal vision of life at work and home. This is the podcast for passionate life travelers and leaders who want to live a deliberate, confident, and fulfilling life and change the world while they do. I'm your host, Rita Hyland, and in each episode, we'll expose you to something new in the areas of passion, performance, and psychology that you can immediately apply to grow your life, love, and leadership. Hello, this is Rita Hyland on episode 15 of the Playing Full Out podcast. And in today's podcast, we're talking about how to lock in a habit when self-discipline fails you. If I was a betting person, I'd bet that you have a habit that you either want to add to your routine or that you want to drop. And chances are you've tried already to add or drop this habit before, but it hasn't stuck. How often have you asked yourself, I know what I should be doing and I that I have to be doing this certain thing to grow my business or my leadership or my health, but why can't I get myself to do it? If you're like most people, you've asked yourself that question a lot of times, right? Well, there is a scientific reason that you can't get yourself to do what you want and what you might need to do to grow your business or your leadership or your life. And the answer really is quite simple. You're not in the habit of doing what you need to do. And even though you know you need to be doing certain things, We are subconsciously driven by our habits and we do what is habitual habitual, and we don't do what's not habitual. And I bet that you probably get this and that makes sense, but I also bet that you don't grasp the real magnitude of what I just said. So I'm going to explain it a little bit more. Here's an interesting brain science fact for you. 95% of everything you do is a subconscious brain-based habit. And your brain makes your decisions for you. And it does this, this is even more wild, your brain makes decisions for you a full seven seconds before you consciously make the decision. And science proves this to be true. So your brain has got a habit and automatic reaction and decision that's going on before you think that you're consciously making that decision. This means that your brain does all your thinking for you, even when you think you're the one deciding. You're not doing what you need to do in your business or your work or your health because you're not in the habit of doing it. And this is why it's absolutely vital if you want a successful business or a successful leadership track, or you want to improve your health or improve any aspect of your world, you have to learn how your brain controls your habits and how your habits control your life. There's two men that I think of that around habits, Barack Obama and Dick Cheney. Both of these people have 
something in common beyond their service in the White House. Over the course of their lives, each of them has struggled with an addiction to cigarettes and smoking. And even though they had rational and logical, uh, intuitive reasons even, even pressure to, to drop smoking, President Obama had it when he was coming into the White House and he wanted to have a good example or set a good example. And Dick Cheney, because he was in need of many surgeries on his heart, many stints were placed in him, several bypass surgeries, and each of them struggled and were known to quit again and again and again. So looking at why is it that so many people find it difficult to quit a habit when they're faced with a mountain of evidence that it's detrimental to their health is telling. And again, this goes back to the very simple habit answer. The fact is, is that we're not just talking, however, as you probably can guess about their smoking habits. We're talking about all habits and there are all kinds of them from drinking to nail biting to not doing something that we know would serve growing our business weekly or day to day. So the fact is, is that your life, this is really important. Your whole life is a reflection of your habits. You do or you don't do. And your life is where it is because of your habits. The reason that your brain uses habits and unconscious decision-making is because it would be really overwhelmed and overloaded if every single thing we did had to be done consciously. So it's just too much. So it's sort of an easy way for the brain to conserve energy. So whether your habits are good or bad habits, they're attractive to your brain because they require less energy. And new habits, they requ- they're difficult because initially they require more energy to get going. But the thing is, is that once you strengthen a new habit, your brain's going to automatically choose to go over to that one instead of the old one. So I'm going to lay out for you how to create a habit that sticks and that your brain registers. But to do that, you have to understand a couple things about the brain and which makes, which part of the brain really makes the decision so that you know, so it will enforce the habit. And there are three parts to the brain. There's the, the, the thinker part, the part that you really think that most of us, you know, universally think of as the brain, which is the neocortex. And it is, says, what do I think about this habit? It will get, it's the part that registers the evidence and the, the numbers and the practicality and, and the, you know, the mountains of, of evidence of why you should do something. But the thing is, is that this thinking part of the brain, the thinker, it is not the part that makes decisions. Then you have the midbrain. It's also known as the limbic brain or the feeler. And the purpose of this part of the brain is to process information. It asks, how do I feel about this? But again, the midbrain is not the part that makes decisions. The third part of the brain is the reptilian brain, and it is the old brain. It is the also known as the amygdala, and it is the part that triggers the decision. It's very, very primitive, 
It responds to only about six stimuli that really work, which I'll tell you which ones those are. But it is your decision maker. When you think about when you were young and you wanted something, you wanted to go out or you wanted to go get ice cream out of the ice cream truck, you would come in and you would find the decision maker, whether it's your mom or your dad. And if you went to one of them and they would say, go ask your dad or go ask your mom, they were putting you towards the ultimate decision maker. So you have to talk to the ultimate decision maker. You have to convince the ultimate decision maker to make the change or to get what you want. This is the only place that you're going to hear this. How, and that's very important because you won't, you will often hear from, from trainers and motivational speakers that you need to employ self-discipline and mental toughness and grit, but it has nothing to do with those because ultimately your thinker and your midbrain are always going to be overridden by whatever the reptilian brain or the amygdala is considers or weighs in on. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit more to that. I'm going to talk, tell you how you speak to the amygdala and the old brain or the reptilian brain so that you can get that part of the brain to buy into the habit and do this without the self-discipline or the failure rate that you've had in the past. So let, before we go any further, though, I want to explain the three components of a habit that can really make it easier to change the bad habits and establish some good ones. They were really meaningful to me and helpful when I was making a big shift out of dropping a habit that was really bad for me that I'll share with you in a second. But the three parts, there's a cue, a routine, and a reward. And the cue to me is the most important one because the cue is the thing that stimulates the habit or the routine. So the cue can be a habit that, um, for me, I used to go after I would exercise, for example, and go get a Diet Coke. I never drank, I never drank coffee, any other kinds of caffeine, but there was something about that I had had this habit going on for so long and enjoyed both the, the, the reward for me was time away. It was, a relaxation feeling, a satisfaction feeling, a feeling of the, the of a, that exact thing I knew going down my throat. So I had the cue that any time there were certain parts of the day, and they, they were also time related, that that was my cue to go do the next part of the component of the habit, the routine. And so those things were linked together. And then there is the reward, and the reward might be. Like I said, the food itself, or it can be the feeling of relaxation or satisfaction. So when you are doing a habit or starting to employ a habit, what you want is to start, and I'll tell you more about this, is to link it with an existing cue, because that is where the amygdala goes into conserving energy and instantaneously puts the cue, whatever's happening, Sometimes it might be, I hear a lot of people say, I like Coke with my pizza. So the cue would be the pizza. The routine or the habit is the, is the drinking of the Coke. And then the reward is the satisfaction or the feeling that goes with it. Now we have many of those. Sometimes it's five o'clock and it's, it's drinking hour or we go into the workplace and, um, 
we immediately, the amygdala gets stimulated to answer emails and telephones rather than go into highest impact work. There's all types of habits that are working and aren't working. But again, they are all begin with the cue. Okay, so let's go for it. Let me go into how you create your habit that your brain will accept. To do that, I want you right now to think about a habit that you want to add that if you did would make the most impactful change to you or your business. Maybe you've thought of this habit and wanted to drop it or add it a lot lot before, or maybe right now intuitively something's just come. Like if you did one thing, it would pivot and change a lot. It would leverage a lot in your workplace or in your personal world. Okay, got it? Now just take that with with you as we go through these a couple of these steps. Changing, as I've just told you, a bad habit or adding or adopting a new one, you know, rarely works simply because it's the right thing to do. We all have the information of what the right thing is to do. And we, you know, would have dropped sugar, but we don't. Because all of these things are ingrained in with us, our habits. There's new existing neural pathways that exist which to me look like, I imagine them as troughs. There's been a lot of water and flow and throughput that has built these, these little ditches because a, lot of, a lot's been flowing through. It's the way it's happened. The circuit has gone many times before. Now we're building a new neural pathway. And to build that new neural pathway, we're going to need a lot of consistency and flow through through that to build it out. Here's step number one in order to get an habit, a habit to stick. And it also pertains to speaking to the amygdala in the way that it registers. You have to have and establish an emotional connection. So here it is. If the goal that you set doesn't make your eyes light up when you think of it, or if you don't feel fear at the possibility of reaching it, then it really is a goal that isn't going to happen. It's plain and simple. So I, I had two people I was speaking to this week. One repeatedly wanted to set, add exercise into his morning routine. Busy man who works downtown. And he's like, but I just don't want to. I mean, he, there's nothing about it that is um, has an emotional component. He neither is excited, doesn't have a why of excitement, or his eyes certainly don't light up when he thinks about it. And he doesn't really fear, have a reason to not do it. And as you could even see with Barack Obama and and Cheney, they both had plenty of good reasons to drop their bad habit, but it there wasn't enough there. It has to be the right amount of per- that's very personal that speaks to you. So even interestingly about Barack Obama is that he has quit smoking. And when asked why he did, his wife said that he wanted to be able to look in his daughter's eyes and say, tell them that he wasn't smoking. And what's interesting is that he was caught on an open mic abroad. And when asked that same question, he was said, I actually was afraid of my wife. So that for him, his what resonated for him or what caught him his meaningful why is that he had just enough fear of his wife. 
to, to pressure him. So it's, it's knowing what your why is, and that's how you get to an emotional connection with your habit. So for me, I have been told I didn't care that Diet Coke cleaned pennies. I didn't care that, you know, some people said it hurt, you know, that there were different negative things. They never registered for me. But there was one day when I, many times of trying to stop and start and stop and start, actually trying to stop, but continuing to start, is that I linked that Diet Coke would give me rheumatoid arthritis. And I had been aching, and then I had just seen, sadly, my mother-in-law come down with, with very, very painful arthritis, and it clicked for me that this was something I feared enough that I was going to change the habit. And I did, so I, I set up a new cue that I would be replacing every time I would normally be do. I would have a period of whether I wanted to release to get stress or I had my new habit of my time when I would come home from something. I am, I added something else different. Like I would say, I'm going to go get an iced tea instead. So I set up a new exist and something new with the cue. But most importantly in this, that as it pertains to this first step is I made an emotional connection with it. So a goal without emotion is almost guaranteed to fail. And if you're trying to have someone at work do something for you, or you're trying to get someone to, you know, implement something else, you have to make sure that they have some type of an emotional connection to the goal that's personal for them. The fact is, is that the intensity of the emotion often influences the speed at which we're going to incorporate that new habit. So for me, when it clicked, when I saw something very painful associated with my sister, my mother-in-law was so visual for me, I got it. Like that is not what I want. That, that, that unfortunately we are motivated by fear oftentimes because it's the amygdala that's making the decision and, and the amygdala is making it, like I said, within seven seconds before you're really making your decision. But it's also very much based, the amygdala is the fight or flight. So it's making decisions of do I, I don't like change and I am going to abort when I can. The, if I added one thing here to really lock in your emotional connection, I can't underestimate the power of obviously making it specific and personal and writing it down. But I also mention visualizing the steps that you plan to take in pursuit of this, incorporating this new goal or habit. It's a bit like practicing an emergency drill. So it lays the track for a new neural pathway that you can follow to achieve your particular goal. So think of it like this. If you were practicing, if if your kid's practicing a fire drill, for a fire drill, and they are guided out, when you remember when you were a kid, through a certain way so that they know which doors to exit in the event that a fire occurs. Isn't it more important that they go through the steps on how to remove themselves from the fire than it is to visualize themselves sitting outside watch at that they've already achieved getting outside and watching the burning building behind them. 
So many times there's this distinction that psychologists make that people will do visualization. And you've heard me say it before many times that you want to visualize things as though they are already achieved. And, and the most important distinction here is that you want to, um, in general, visualize the path to your goal which is more important or powerful than imagining it as already completed. They're called the, the two different things are called fantasy expectations and positive expectations. So, or positive fantasizing, I believe it's positive fantasizing can really relax you as though it's already happened, but it's, Value can be really detrimental because it tricks the brain that it's already done before you've taken the first step. What I mean by this is I had a client who said, well, I want to be a seven-figure business earner. And she says, and I imagine that. I'm, it's almost, she goes, it's almost scary that I do it because I'm spending as though I am. So here she is. She's tricked her brain that this has already taken place and and she's operating as though it's happened. And what would be more valuable is that she doesn't simply feel that she can do it but she also knows how she's going to do it. So you don't simply feel how you can do it. You also want to, or that that you can do it. You also want to see how you can do it. Instead of celebrating prematurely, you know, and the brain at that point releases all of this dopamine, you want to, again, see your steps through it and visualize it. The more the, the stimuli that are very specific to being able, the amygdala gets spoken to in, with this type of emotion. And I told you before that there are really six primal stimuli and they are that they're, it's personal, contrastable, it stands out, it's market. In other words, it's tangible, memorable, visual, and emotional. So whether it's written, some of these ways of doing this is making it visual, is writing it down, something that really is is powerful. It, it's it's in essence this step is asking what is the why that brings my that lights me up or the why that makes me fearful enough. So some people, let's take an example, will say things like, um, "I want to drop sugar." Well, why? I want to drop sugar because I want my pants to fit. Why? That doesn't get anybody very excited. So you have a personal why. The why might be, you might keep asking the why until you get down to, I want to speak in front of the annual meeting in two months with eight less pounds on me. So that is something that's that you is personal to you. It's tangible. It's visual. It's emotional. Get to a why that compels you enough to bring in that habit if it really means something to you. Okay, so I gave you the example of the second step after you've made something, an emotional response, is that you want to ask yourself, what is the small step that you can take toward reaching it? Now, the biggest reason to do everything small is because change, big change doesn't work. And that's because the brain sees the change as a threat. All of us are aware of things that take us out of our comfort zone, but few of us really have an understanding of the neuroscience of the brain. And now you do. You're going to be the the 5% of the world that does. And this will change everything. You've got to talk to the decision maker. Our brains, which is the, which is the, the reptilian brain, our brains are conditioned to respond to most changes as threats, even if they're good ones. 
So when we use the, 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 the science of persuasion with these six primal stimuli and you, we, we establish cues and we talk to the amygdala, we can condition our brains to respond calmly. So the fact is that our brains are conditioned to respond to most changes as threats, but what, because what happens is that we, it bypasses our, cort, our neocortex, our thinking brain, and the, it will bypass our limbic feeling brain, and it will go straight to the amygdala, which always screams abort, especially if it sees that some things take energy to bring about. If your brain sees something as energy inefficient, it's going to trigger a threat response. So if I have to consciously think about using willpower or my mental toughness to make a change, it, the brain's going to be like, I can't. It's at, at a, during an age where we are all overwhelmed, over, overextended, given to, over-informed, there's so much. The brain is always looking for hacks and shortcuts. And so it's going to make those hacks and shortcuts by not changing anything in your world. And we know if we don't change anything in our own personal world, then we're not going to experience the results that we're looking to in our business and our workplace. So understanding how to work with your brain to make this change is key. So I had a client even, I just think it's so interesting. Even when positive changes happen, the brain sees them as a threat can help you to understand this even when you're working with people. So he had a a, a team, owned a business, had a team of people. He set out to improve their compensation plan, which is obvious positive. He was doing it in a way that was to really, he had a consultant that interviewed his people and the people um, got a lot of say in what the changes that they wanted, they were all put through so that this thing was going to really benefit them, really something special. But when he announced it, he noticed and was surprised that he got no positive feedback. There was no there was no elation. There was no excitement. There was no no feeling at all. You could see it. They were sort of like without feeling. It was stone-faced. And what I explained to him what was happening was that even though it was good, it was change. And change automatically sends a message that of skepticism and that this could be something scary. This could be a threat to me. The brain doesn't, or it's, it sees changing a habit as like, you're going to die. Frankly, that's the, the initial response. That's where it buys. I said, bypasses your first two brains and goes to the reptilian brain. And so the initial response is always, this is bad. So it takes time for the amygdala to get on board. And when I spoke to the employees about it, they said that exact thing. They would one by one, one would say, I just, I have to see how it works and, 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 and really put, you know, look at it a little bit more because the initial result is, is no, is abort. Even when we're not even aware that it's happening. So you could, this is how you can also be aware of what, what's going on with another person when you're suggesting something that you can think is good and you're like, and you don't understand why they are not moving with you. Here's the thing. When you take small actions that are the ones that are incremental or that they seem inconsequential, you can slowly creep right by the amygdala and not arouse it. So this is the reason for small steps. And what's the smallest step that you can take to begin to implement your habit? 
there's 50% of the, of the country makes New Year's resolutions, but 92% fail at keeping them. So how can you be one of the 8% that does? This is the way by working with your, your amygdala and working it with a way that it's you're making an emotional connection with it. You're making very small bite-sized pieces, take a, a bite-sized action. And then step three is what cue do I want to put with it? For example, you know this morning that you got out of bed and did your morning routine the same way I bet that you did it yesterday. You always, you go, maybe you get your coffee first or you brush your teeth or you take a shower, but all of it is done the same way. And that's pretty much the rest of your day as well, or how you make the decisions for the rest of the day. So if you want to employ a new habit, cue it up with something that already exists if you always go to lunch at 12 o'clock, decide your habit. You're going to cue, you're going to cue lunch with this new habit. You're going to cue brushing your teeth with a 10 minute meditation. And then I would put stickers all over that say, you know, 10 minute meditation. So you're, you're, you're imprinting on your brain. The fourth step is to take the small action. So a lot of times I have a lot of executives who will ask for a new change. And they'll say, we're going to fill out this form for the rest of the year. A better step would be to take the minimum viable action. It's the smallest step. So maybe it's, let's do this for the next five days. And then we will add making a telephone call on top of that. So step four is to take the small action. It's an interesting word. And I like this philosophy and has to do with habits, which is called Kaizen. And it's a Japanese word, though I understand that it was first used by Americans in business, and it means continuous improvement. And what this means is that you never go less than you did the day before. So it's continuous improvement. So as opposed to saying, I'm going to swim 70 laps in the pool, you might start with five laps, but you'll never go less than five laps. And they did research on this. And what they found is that tomorrow you would either do five or six. And what they found is that people were able to get up within a month up to 70 laps because they were operating with, in the spirit of Kaizen, that's K-A-I-Z-E-N. So this idea of continuous improvement in your place means start small so that your brain will allow it to absorb and take it in without, you know, you do it without poking the bear, if you will. And then you continue to move with small action and incrementally increase. So you begin with small action and then incrementally increase. Final step is to, and that's the fifth step, is to reinforce with a reward. So some of the things that I love in terms of reward is, is, is just giving small rewards. Habits are really ingrained because of the reward. So someone I noticed who was dropping smoking, he had this app that showed the number of cigarettes that he, he was, he was give he let go each day. He was taking note of it. He tracked it. And then that translated into the money that was saved or it's the pant size that goes down or it's the reward of, of tracking for five days that I made these calls and noticing the change or even getting the the praise from a manager or captain or team member or whatever. So 
or doing your, having your own reward. This is what I will give myself or do for myself with that reward. You want what gets tracked as we know gets done. And that because that's because it's focusing the brain and it's demonstrating the reward. So you want your goal and your ambition to become automatic and to be triggered by a cue. And then that tells the brain to activate the routine your takeaways, your habits are your life. Whatever you're doing today, you're going to do tomorrow unless you start incorporating a new habit about them. Hard work and discipline are never going to be the unique separator. They are never going to be the reason that a, a habit sticks. They will always, your, 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 your brain will always be making a decision long before you start thinking about forcing something. That's why, you know, you could say something, they're going to do something in the morning. And at the end of the day, your habit is what has won out. Talk to your amygdala, talk to the decision maker, which likes to be talked to in emotion. And it likes to do things in small incremental steps. So it doesn't, doesn't get scared. It doesn't, it, it doesn't, you can't tell it it's going to die. I often say you don't have to do this forever amygdala just for today. And then create the new neural association by using an existing cue. That's really key. And then attaching a new habit of behavior with it. I am eager to hear how your habits will help you, the new habits you incorporate, change the course of your work and your business and your health or your life. So your call to action is to choose your one habit that you're going to master this week, that you're going to attach to a new cue, and that you're going to create your own emotional connection with and take one small action and use Kaizen, just incrementally increase. I look forward to hearing about your new habit and Also, I will look forward to talking to you in our next podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Playing Full Out. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes for more tips, tools, and inspiration to leading the optimal vision of your life, love, and leadership. And remember, a half version of you is not enough. The world needs the fullest version of you at play.